if you are someone who struggles with that, like the house needs to be picked up before we host people, that mindset can definitely show up in your garden. And it's really helpful to be like, no, the garden doesn't need to be weeded before we have a barbecue this weekend. Nobody cares. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about gardening. I mean, also diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting and health. But today is a gardening episode. So buckle up, you're going to love it. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am so delighted to be chatting with my good friend, Anne Helen Peterson. Annie is the author of four books, and she also writes the newsletter, Culture Study, and recently launched the new sub-newsletter, Garden Study. We have just been bonding over plants offline, over text for a long time now, so I wanted to have her come on so we can just like really geek out about all things garden culture. There is so much fun stuff here. And I know about 30% of you said on the reader survey you don't care about gardening, so this episode's not for you, but I also think it is for you. I think somewhere in your hearts you do love gardening, and you're going to love this episode. Because also, talking to Annie always means you end up talking about all sorts of social issues, cultural issues. It just always ends up bigger than what do I do about my hydrangeas, but also we'll go there too. We pretty much went everywhere and recorded a whole bunch. So to get the full conversation where Annie and I also answer your gardening questions, you'll need to be a paid subscriber. More details on that in a minute. Here is Anne Helen Peterson, but first a quick break. We are coming up on the end of July, so I just wanted to quickly let you know that if you haven't read my first book, The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, you can currently get the Kindle version on Amazon for just $2.99. That is a really good deal. The paperback is usually like $18. So if you are a Kindle user, click the link in your episode description or go search The Eating Instinct on Amazon. You will see the Kindle version there until the end of the month. You've got just a few more days, so go grab it and get your copy of The Eating Instinct. I will also just quickly say that I normally am much more pro-independent bookstore, but I do love when Amazon drops the prices like this and makes it very accessible to folks. So that's why I'm giving it the plug. Obviously, if you have the bandwidth buy it from your independent bookstore instead, spend a few extra bucks and support a great local business. That would be my preference, but it is a really good deal. And I also just want to say, if you are newer to my work and haven't read the first book, when you read it, keep in mind that I wrote it in 2017. A lot of my thinking on these issues has evolved and become more nuanced. There are some things in that book I bump on now, and I just want to be clear about that. But I also think there are a lot of valuable conversations still to be had, And if you're interested in my personal story and sort of journey divesting from diet culture, what we went through with my older daughter and her pediatric feeding disorder, it's all in there. So check that out. The link is in your episode description or search The Eating Instinct on Amazon. I grew up in a house that had a ton of gardens. My mom's a huge gardener. I grew up in really arid Idaho, not in the mountains, actually the lowest point in Idaho. But my mom had, I think, over like 250 roses. Wow. And a huge vegetable garden and all sorts of things and planted all of it herself because it was a vacant lot before we built our house. So, so many of my memories as a kid are, oh, your mom's out in the garden. And I was not really interested in it at the time. 
I was not that kid who was like, Mom, show me how to plant a pea or mm-hmm. whatever. There were some flowers that I liked in the garden. I really loved the bleeding hearts. And then when I graduated from college, I came to Seattle and was a nanny for several years. And I got so bored when we were out walking. You know, the two-year-old that I was walking with, like, yep. was pretty bored. Like, we talked about trucks and stuff like that. There's only so much discourse there. Yeah. And also, remember, this is before phones, so I couldn't even, like, be a bad nanny and, like, look at my phone all the time. <laughs> I just had to hang out in my own mind. What I did was I we'd go on a walk, like, two to three times a day in this little Seattle neighborhood, and I learned all of the plants. The parents of the kid I was nannying for had a— Sunset Handbook, which Mm -hmm. is kind of like the Bible of gardening out here in the West. And then also the house that I was living in at the time with my friends had a pretty substantial garden. And I was like, okay, I'll do some gardening out here. And that taught me a lot about those plants. And then when I was in grad school, like the first place that I lived in Oregon, I had a pretty robust vegetable garden Mm -hmm. that was really fun to do. And then moved to Texas and I was like, I know nothing. Yeah, totally different. Nothing. I tried to grow some things on my balcony. It was just a horrible, just abysmal. And I didn't garden again. Like I did a little bit of vegetable gardening in Montana, especially during the pandemic, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to an island off the coast of Washington that had an incredible luscious garden that was really mindfully put in Mm -hmm. by the previous owners of the house. You know, it has like 40 to 50 roadies and azaleas that, like, succession bloom. Like, it has a climbing hydrangea that's about 40 feet tall and probably 40 feet wide. There's several of them that kind of come together seamlessly. Like, those grow so slowly. Like, rhododendrons and climbing hydrangeas are some of the slowest things to establish. Like, it was probably planted in the 1960s or 70s. amazing. So there's a lot of great things, but then I also, and we'll get into this, there's also a lot of natural foes Mm -hmm. on the island, Mm -hmm. and I've just fallen in love with it, like deeply in love with it the last couple of years. I love this. My origin story is also mother-related. My mom's British gardening is like a national pastime there. It's like a really big part of mainstream culture in a way that it's not here in the United States. So my grandfather was a really serious gardener, my aunt, my cousins, like it's just that whole side of my family. And I wanted nothing to do with it, like (laughs) zero interest as a kid and a teenager. And even throughout my 20s, like you getting interested in plants at 24, I feel like is quite a child prodigy with gardening. (laughs) I really have to emphasize how much this had to do with having nothing else to do. So (laughs) bored. I went to college in New York City and then stayed in New York City through my 20s. And so it was, again, like not really on my radar. But then we moved up to the Hudson Valley. And when we bought our first house here, I was like immediately overwhelmed because there was a yard. And then I had a friend that spring, like took me to lunch. I think we went to sushi and got sake. And I was like a little tipsy. And then she was like, we're going to go to Home Depot and look at seeds. And I was like, okay, that seems great. And got like (laughs) (laughs) totally hooked that year. Like I started with like a couple of pots. And then by the end of the summer, I was like ripping up beds and like remaking everything. That's so funny though, that you started with like seeds from Home Depot. Yeah. yeah just, the most basic gardening yeah, experience. Like, maybe yeah. not even viable, right? No, I, none of them grow. <laughs> but I just, I needed a little toehold. Like I needed one little piece to feel doable. And then it was like all this like genetic predisposition kicked in. I was like, oh, it turns <laughs> out you turn 30 and all of your British gardening <laughs> DNA becomes activated. <laughs> 
<laughs> and now here we are 12 years later, and it's my main hobby and obsession. But I do think with gardening, it feels like learning a foreign language at first. Like, it's yes. not just naming the plants. It's also, like, every plant has its own particular ecosystem and story and pruning strategy. I feel about it the way I felt about learning the New York City subway system, which was the first year I lived there. I just had to plan on the fact that I was going to go the wrong direction and end up in Brooklyn all the time. For me, it was go the wrong direction and end up on, what's that little island? If you take the F, you end up on that little island. Oh, yeah. yeah. Roosevelt (laughs) Island or something. Yes, Roosevelt (laughs) Island. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And it's because it was like this thing that was put together with no master plan, and it's just like— is yeah. what it is. And I still feel that way about so much with gardening, mm-hmm. too. Clematis still scare me so much. Oh, yeah, much. with the pruning groups? How do you ever know what pruning group you're in? <laughs> Type one, two, three. <laughs> anyway, sad. sorry, I've interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's what we're here to do. Yeah, I agree. That is a tricky one. So we are both, like, at one point, vegetable gardeners. Yep. I did vegetable gardens for a lot at my first house. And here I have zero vegetable gardens. Well, I Same. have some tomatoes. Not even tomatoes. The closest I get is rosemary. This year I'm looking at the tomatoes like, I could really use this space for something better. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me, why is it not vegetables anymore? Like, what are your main garden passions at this point? Mm, you know, I loved vegetables when I was starting out, because I think it is a great entryway, right? It's a lot more straightforward. It's like, I plant the spinach seeds this time, like, and you can see it in the books, right? It is true. It's very mapped out. Like, there's... There are great books that show, like, here is when you plant the spinach Mm -hmm. seeds. Here is when you plant these other things. There are a lot of things, though, that I think oftentimes frustrate people because there are just, there are vegetables that are very hard to grow. Yeah. Carrots, really hard to grow. Right. Shockingly hard. And we, in the Pacific Northwest, we have great weather to grow a ton of crops, but then like bad weather to grow a lot of the fun stuff, like peppers. So you can't grow like any sort of melons, really. Like maybe you get one, you can grow like hard squash and that sort of thing. But most people just like everywhere else, just grow a billion zucchini mm-hmm. and then drop them off at everyone's Yeah, and then regret, regret the zucchini. Yeah, I don't grow zucchini. I think I also, there was something lovely about planning every year, but then also like there was a lot of work too. Mm-hmm. And every year is an empty bed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Most of my containers are annuals with like a couple of perennials. Like mm-hmm. each pot has like maybe one perennial. Mm-hmm. But I think that I... Wanted that space for things that were there during the winter, too. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. I think as you continue gardening, yeah. you figure out, like, oh, in the winter when I feel so gloomy and sad, like, I want to be able to look out the yes. window and see something. Yes, the winter interest of it all. You talked about that interest. in a recent piece, and I was like, it is the funniest <laughs> phrase. And also, <laughs> yes, it's all I want. I think for me— there were two pieces to giving up vegetable gardening. One was we were not eating a lot of the stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. I realized I was growing it for a lot of diet culture reasons, right? Mm. And a lot of the, like, Michael Pollan foodie mid-2000s, 2010s stuff that yep. I was then, like, ready to get out of. And it didn't feel as satisfying creatively. Like, with perennials yeah. and annuals, you play around much more with color, There's a lot of design elements. For me, gardening is more of a creative expression. And, like, I don't know. We could unpack that. Maybe that's very, like, bougie and privileged. But it's what actually I love about it. So a perennial is a plant that comes back every year. Yep. Thank you. 
plant, an annual is a plant that thrives for a season and then dies. Mm. And we recently had a conversation in one of my newsletters about, like, why would you plant annuals if they die every year? (laughs) Fair question. (laughs) But a lot of, like, gorgeous plants, especially Mm -hmm. plants with a lot of color, are annuals, and that's part of why people plant annuals. And they bloom the whole season, usually. Whereas perennials, like, lilacs are amazing, and it's, like, an amazing two weeks. And then the peonies are an amazing two weeks. There are a few perennials, like my oak leaf hydrangea shrubs, will bloom, like, for a longer stretch. But a lot of perennials have, like, this brief, spectacular moment, and then they're done. Whereas annuals can then, like, tide you over. And I'll say, too, that I think part of the reason I vegetable garden in the first place was that I could justify it as, like, Mm. I'm saving money. By growing vegetables. Yep, sure, yeah. And then very quickly that, I mean, and actually I think when I gardened in grad school, there was like some truth to that because I would eat like the same thing all the time. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I had like two zucchini that I could take from a plant Mm -hmm. basically every day for two months of the year, like, yeah, sure. Although zucchini are really cheap. really inexpensive. (laughs) (laughs) Tomatoes, maybe a little bit more. And like there actually are, there's all these calculators and stuff in different books that show, you know, which plant saves you the most money. Like growing this saves you the most money. Yeah, I do think tomatoes is when once you've invested in the raised bed or whatever, like, you know, you have to like, there's a lot of sunk costs to gardening, but like, sure, if you have a place already to put them, buying a couple of seedlings or starting from seed, if that's your ministry, it's not mine, you know, buying a couple of seedlings for like $4 at the beginning of the season, and then you will have pounds and pounds and pounds of tomatoes. But you will also spend lots of time watering and fertilizing and, you know, all of that has a value as well. And I think that that was, you know, when I was also very into vegetable gardening, it's no mistake that it was also like during grad school. Mm -hmm. And when I was very invested in productivity culture, like if I Mm -hmm. wasn't working on something, right, like my leisure had to be work in some capacity. And now as I've tried to divest myself from productivity culture, I am so much more open to like, I'm just piddling around doing stuff just even if I'm the only person who sees it, yes. it doesn't matter. And, like, leisure can be just, like, having something pretty and yeah. enjoying. I feel like when it's really serving me is when instead of getting overwhelmed by the endless, like, you know, it's easy to look at your garden and see only a to-do list at a certain yep. point. But yep. instead, like, just enjoying going out and doing, like, a five-minute, like, deadhead or, you know, like, the small little things and just, like, that puttering around is something's like so soothing and regulating to me about just like the quick evening garden putter or the early morning garden putter. It's so nice. Charlie, my partner, says that like if he doesn't know where I am in the house, because we both work from home, at least in the summertime, he's like, I know you're just out with your plants. Yep. Right? Yep. And sometimes it will be that, oh, I just went up to like take the garbage out. Yep. And I'm just like looking at my dahlias. Right? <laughs> my kids know the same thing, actually. They know to come find me in the garden always. And a lot of it yeah. is like, I'm going to check the mail and I'm just out here. I find it so useful when I'm concentrating on something. Like I have days that are writing days where I'll sit in one spot for a long time just trying to kind of pound out a draft of something. And I used to, like, check Twitter during that time, but now I'll go out and I'll look at my flowers, right? But it really, it scratches an itch in a similar way. I agree. Without the, like, 
nasty hangover part of right yeah. because I'm still I'm looking for things that have changed. I think you could actually honestly do this if you had like three pots on your yeah. windowsill or yeah, something like totally. that. Like plants change so much. They change overnight. They change over the course of a day if they've been watered, right? Yeah. Like there's just so much that you can look it's for. So and that might sound yeah. weird and boring. But then you like and you and I have talked a little bit about this, I think, about like how it's kind of like a puzzle too that mm. you're figuring out. I was just thinking that I was thinking about how I'm doing less jigsaw puzzles right now. Mm. I realized the other week and I was like, oh it's well it's because it's garden season. It is this constant puzzle, and there's a lot of constant troubleshooting and, like, why is this not happy here? And mm -hmm. Yeah, I realized I didn't say where I garden now, which is I'm in the Hudson okay. Valley. We live on a small mountain, so it's very rocky woodland. It claims to be Zone 6, but it really behaves more like a Zone 5 because we're up mm. a little bit. And lots of shade, lots of rocky soil, lots of dry shade. My first garden, we had a Victorian and, like, a sunny lot and in town. And so it was such a shift to come here and figure out gardening in, like, a rocky, woodlandy kind of place. Yeah. But that's been really satisfying. To I've actually really gotten into shade gardening a lot here. I should say that I am in Zone 8, and I live on the water, which doesn't—it's not, like, fancy. <laughs> There's a lot of sand from mm -hmm. the sandstone that's, like, the— kind of the native rock here. And there are a ton of native plants everywhere you look, like just because it's a very rural island. Mm -hmm. I live next to two houses, but like the native stuff is taking over all over the place. Mm -hmm. Also, this is, I think, kind of interesting and something that people don't always talk about with gardening. The county regulations, especially with our island, are very specific about like what you can and can't plant. Oh, interesting. On the shoreline. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and within so much, like, a distance of the shoreline. And so we have, like, I have a grandfathered-in lawn that you could never get away with planting now. But I'm slowly getting rid of it, you know. Because you need more garden space. Yeah. I totally am, like, slowly tearing out the grass. Yeah. I'm like, what if we just make a little bed right here? <laughs> but it gets just a, got a little wider every just year. Yeah. A little yeah. wider. Yeah. But we... Also, I get a ton of wind coming in from the water. And so it changes, like, what you can grow on one side of the house and the other. Like, things have to be very robust to stick up to that, mm -hmm. that icy winter wind. But figuring it out. And that's part of the fun, too, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, this lupin loves it here. Like, it will thrive. Yeah. Why don't I get more lupin yes. and put it there? <laughs> yes. Or will it please make more for me? That's always satisfying yes. when something actually, like, starts to really— spread out. You moved into a very established garden, which was my experience with my first house. But with this house, the previous owners had zero garden, basically. It wow. was like a total blank slate, which was wonderful in lots of ways because it is hard sometimes with an established garden when you're battling against somebody else's yes. vision or like, why did they put this here? And it's so hard to yes. dig out and move. And there's that, you know? And like, Fortunately, we didn't have any of this, but I'm sure so many people listening have battled the weed netting. Yes, the weed <laughs> netting. I had that at my first house. Or there's just like, there's trends in plants, right? So like the like yeah. small striped variegated hostas, not the good fat pastas, yes. but the little ones. People love to put those everywhere here. I dug up millions of them in my last house. So I didn't have that problem here, but I did have like nothing, which was also intimidating and hard to yes. figure out. And so... I have spent years watching these beds that we did put in just be, like, finally starting to knit together. Like, finally figuring out what works and will actually, like, self-sew and make itself bigger here. 
my whole like mission in life is always like less mulch, less. I don't want to see the mulch. I don't want to see the mulch. (laughs) Well, and this is where I think that gardening is sometimes a hard hobby to imagine, specifically when you don't own the house, when you're moving a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because perennial garden in particular, like part of the reason the plants cost more money is because they last. Yeah. Theoretically, yes. forever, yeah. right? Yeah. And to be able to envision yourself in one place is really hard for a lot of people for all sorts of different reasons, mm-hmm. right? Like precarity is the defining characteristic of like our contemporary existence. Mm-hmm. So and precarity is the enemy of like long-term planning. Yeah. I always think of like having kids as like the biggest protest that people make <laughs> in terms of precarity. They're like, screw it. I'm still going to have kids, right? right? It's true. Screw Despite it. I'm still going to have a garden. <laughs> no, gardening is fundamentally quite illogical in a lot of ways for that reason. And yeah, and sometimes it's discouraging, right? You plant something, you're like, will I even be here to see this? Like, I do sometimes drive past my old house, and, like, there was a fence, so you can't totally see what they've done, but I know it's not the same garden that I left them with, and it's like, right. oh, there's a little heartbreak there. Oh, it is my mom's greatest sadness that the people who bought that house, our house, with all of those roses, that they tore out <gasps> all of the rosebuds, all of them. It's now my greatest sadness. Can we talk about roses a little bit? Because <sighs> I actually think that there's a really interesting, like, generational divide. Yes. Like, I think of them as, like, boomer plants. Agreed. And <laughs> they're so high-maintenance, and, like, they can be very fussy. The whole, like, the way you have to prune them with the f- yep. only back to leaves of three or five or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, my British grandfather was big on roses, and I remember learning about roses, but, like, I have never planted a lot of roses. But I think that they're coming back now. Interesting. I think that I've seen, like, a lot of millennials getting into roses. Okay. Well, stay tuned, guys. I mean, if there's a plant trend, I'll probably be on it. I mean, my sun garden is so small, and there's so much mm. competition. Like, there's so much, you know, because I have so much shade, like— yeah. I have to really love a plant to give it sun real estate because I just don't have that much. And I don't think roses are going to be it. But I do really appreciate the big, beautiful, like, cottage roses, the ones that get, like, almost, like, peony-like. Yeah. I'm really here for that. Yeah. No, I have a couple that I inherited, and, like, one of them is, like, a tea rose that's light baby pink. Mm -hmm. sort of thing I would never, Mm -hmm. ever plant. And I keep being like, do I need to love this plant? Can you give it to your mom? Ah, she deliberately, so she just downsized and moved to mm-hmm. my island, actually. Yeah. But she is very specifically, for the first time in her life, not planting anything. I she's going to eventually have, like, a few things. I don't believe it. That's just, she's but. in moving transition. <laughs> she is a gardener. I'm sorry. I know. But she's, she's like, whenever I want to piddle, I'll just come over to your house. Well, that's great for you. Yeah, for the, it is great for me. For she little. pruned all of my ferns this year. Yeah. I was like, yes. That's awesome. But I feel like she's going to want that tea rose. Give it a year. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? But I do have a climbing rose, which I just love. That's one great thing about roses is, like, you can kind of be assholes to them. And if you have the right ground, if they're they're in the right place, they will still, like, do whatever they want. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, they're still going to come back. And that's something I admire about native plants especially is you're, like— I'm doing everything that I can to eliminate you. And you're like, nope, this is mine. I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. My asters and my milkweed right now. It's like 
they are just, it's a land grab, which fair, it's their land, but like they're just <laughs> totally. <laughs> All the like, other stuff is like, like, I'm kind of trying. There's like a Dahlia, like, I'm trying to do something here, guys. The ostrich are like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> no, <again>. exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. I want to make sure we talk about Garden Study, which yeah. is the new sub-newsletter of Culture Study. You're calling it Cup of Joe, but for gardens. I am obsessed with it. Well, before I say anything, I have to say that this is something you and I workshopped together. Yes. Yeah. I was, <laughs> like, I'm being recruited. I'm so far resisting, sort of. Like, I asked on Instagram, I want something that's like Cup of Joe for plants. And people, like, gave me different answers of what they thought that could be, and none of them were quite it. And then I was like, Virginia, we should just do this. <laughs> And we're like, okay, here's what we here's what our posting schedule would we were be. Really like, mapping it out. Yeah, I mean, we're not and ruling it out. We're not. We're ruling not it. ruling it out. Like having it spin off of both of our publications. Yep. Like subscribers get to our publications get free access. All like as they do to Garden Study now. You're and like continuing to evolve that. <laughs> well, part of the reason it'd be perfect is like we garden in different zones, mm-hmm, really different. Like have very different ways that we approach it and limitations on what we can do and can't do and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have so many great guest contributors. Mm-hmm. Like it'd be amazing. <laughs> but as is, Garden Study is also amazing. It is amazing. And right, I mean, we've only had Two issues, two, like, actual issues. What it is is basically a gardening blog for people who are incredibly enthusiastic but not judgy experts, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that so much gardening content that I have consumed on Instagram, in books, wherever— is like master gardeners who, great, like, amazing. I love expertise. But with these, like, gorgeous gardens, right, that just make me feel bad about my garden, there's definitely a piece I want to write at some point, possibly for our garden block, <laughs> TBD. <laughs> there is a really fascinating story to be told about the like elitism of gardening culture. And like, because yeah. I don't know if you have this, but like the Garden Conservancy, like my mom and I go on some other tours sometimes, like throughout the summer, you can like go and tour these fancy gardens. And like, it's just billionaires with like, tons of money and land. We went to one last year that was some billionaire who had like a full-time gardener who planted some million number of daffodils. And so in the spring, it's just like glorious daffodil heaven. But you're also like on this weird estate. There's a lot going on with like the way gardening gets talked about in a lot of the sort of elite traditional gardening magazines and publications is like completely ignoring the fact that this is like a rich person with staff able to execute this vision. Or, like, the money to take a weird spot in your garden and, like, have a landscape architect come in. Yes, yes. And, like, fix it for you. Yes, yes. That is not a reality for the vast majority of gardeners. Yeah. A lot of people don't even have, like, the handy capacity to, like, build a retaining wall. No, that's so hard. (laughs) I always will remember, I don't know where I saw it, but it was, like, this man's backyard garden on Fire Island and it was small, mm-hmm. and he had all these great little nooks mm, that you could tell nooks. that he just, like, cherished, yeah. right? Yeah. And then he didn't have a staff, at least, like, it didn't look like— It didn't look no, like it needed a staff, yeah. No, it was just, like, something that you can tell was his hobby that he adored mm-hmm. whenever he came up to Fire Island. I think they lived there most of the year. So, like, that's fine. But really what I like is other people who are like— 
my peony's not blooming for the third year. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. What did I do? Yeah. <laughs> right? Or like the people who I've had so many people volunteer to do garden interviews already because Ooh. as evidenced by this podcast, people really like talking about their gardens, yeah. but also no one in their like real lives Wants often to like to talk to them about their gardens <laughs> as much as they want to. It is important <laughs> to find your garden friends. It's very important. <laughs> We're going to do pictures and like, please don't feel like you have to like, make it look amazing or mm-hmm. anything like that because I think what it does is it lowers the bar to say yeah. joyful gardening looks like so many things. Yeah. It looks like two containers on your porch. It looks like a super weedy patch, but you put some wildflowers in there that make you so happy every mm-hmm. time that you see them. Right? Yeah. Like It can look like so many different things. This is one thing that I think British gardening culture has done really well. I mean, obviously, England has a huge class hierarchy, and there are the big estates and Great Dixter and all these famous, like, Vita Zekla West Garden, like, all these famous big rich people gardens. But there's such a culture of, like, everybody is a gardener there that everybody Mm. with their, like, little, you know, semi-detached house and tiny backyard is doing these, like, amazing, yeah, the nooks and the sort of, like, prize-winning whatever in this very lovely way. And I mean, yeah, my favorite garden in the world was my Aunt Liz's garden, which, you know, they had like a small cottage in Suffolk. Yeah. And it was, it, it, well, it still is this just spectacular, tiny, but like there were little rooms and like little, like it's this enclave of just like amazing, yeah. amazingness. Just exquisite. That's something that, yeah, it happens in much more like everybody can do it and it's accessible right. and right. not just this like, Yeah inspiration, fancy, architectural digest way. Well, and also I think that the, like, the in-person associations can oftentimes become very hierarchical and exclusive, right? Like, mm-hmm. just I think of a lot of, like, old biddies who are part yeah. of yeah. some of these things that, like, <laughs> yes, unless yes. you are also someone who has been doing this your entire life, like, you're not invited. Or, like, garden tours, I love them in theory, but I also think, like— People feel like they can't have their house on a garden tour if it's not, like, Oh, I mean, there's a reason. It's, like, all billionaires' estates around here. Right. Like, it's, like, (laughs) the bar to entry is too high. And it's a problem for, like, the future of gardening, you know? Like, I do think there's an awareness in the larger gardening community that, like, this shift needs to happen because it's not, this is not something that is, like, hand-downable. There's a coffee clutch that I go to on my island where you just go and have coffee and it's mostly all older ladies, and it rotates between people's houses. And, like, one of my That's favorite lovely. parts has been just going and seeing what their gardens are. Yes. Right? Yes. It's my favorite thing to do. On, like, if I'm on vacation in a new town, that like, you can, like, walk around the neighborhood and see the go. Oh, God, I love it. They all want to talk about their gardens, yeah, so that's of course, fine. Of course. <laughs> You're like, oh, and you got this to bloom here. And a lot of them are retired, so they have a lot of time to spend on yeah. it. And that's how you get free plants from people, too. Which— Everyone wants to divide all of their perennials. Yes. Yes. Division for people who don't know, in a lot of perennials' lives, you need to, like, essentially cut them in half or more than in half Mm -hmm. in order to promote more growth. So, Mm -hmm. like, you you take a spade to the plant and either throw it away, but hopefully give it away. And so sometimes on next door, people will be like, oh, I have all these divisions out. I am on a committee of people who are in charge of the library garden. And... Two years ago, it was entirely planted with divisions from people's houses on the island. That's so sweet. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> you can get a ton of stuff if you just post, even on, like, your local group. Does anyone have any divisions in the spring? 
That's so smart. Okay, so one of my favorite pieces, it wasn't for garden study, so it's pre-garden study, but a piece you wrote this year was the optimization sinkhole. Mm. And you talked about how we're all conditioned now to want to upgrade and improve like everything, and especially in terms of domestic space. I really related because I had the same terrible coffee maker that you start the piece with. <laughs> and I did upgrade it, but I was like, yeah, you're right. I could have just not. And I do feel like gardening can so easily become this. Like I am yes. aware often of having this just never-ending list of every corner of my garden, you know, of our yep. property. And we are surrounded by woods. So like, just like you, like the nature is here. Like the natives are coming in and the invasives are coming in. Like I'm never going to get it every corner of it into some sort of state of perfect. Do you struggle with that or are you able to sort of separate it? Oh, I struggle with it all the time. I feel like this gets us into renovation culture, too, which I would be excited yes. to talk about a little. I mean, you and I are very similar in that we are, like, perfectionist type mm-hmm. A people pleasers. And so it's difficult not to turn that lens onto the garden. And so I think sometimes you can feel like, oh, I have to weed everything. Everything has to be weeded all the time. Or like you said, it's easy to look at the garden and it turns into a to-do list. Mm -hmm. Similarly to how like it's easy to look at your house and it becomes this room needs to be renovated. This room needs to be renovated. Like this needs to be fixed. Like always just like constant dissatisfaction. Yep. Yep. Instead of reveling in the things that are amazing about it already. Mm -hmm. And I think I recognize that impulse in myself. So when it starts creeping up, I can be like, name it, push it back. But then also the other thing that's been helpful to me is giving myself permission to like, that's next year's project. Yes. I think in terms of like the five-year plan of the garden a lot and a lot of the five-year plan is quite ambitious, (laughs) but I have found often something that I put on that list, like when I did it when we first moved in 2016, and there are things on that list that I no longer want to do that I thought felt really essential, but the way we use the space has changed and I don't need a hardscaped fire pit area that I was sure we needed in 2016. <laughs> but actually, we don't use our fire pit that much, and it's fine sitting on the grass. Like, what? Right. Right. No, and, like, mine, some, things will come and wreck your plants. Like, we had to replace our septic system oh. in its entirety, right? Because it was the original septic system. Oh, no. It's real bad. But the way that they had to do that is not only did they have to dig a huge hole to, like, put in the new septic system because they had to take out the old septic tank and bury it in another part of our yard because Mm -hmm. the other option, just because how our property is, was to either helicopter it out or take it out on a barge. No. Right? Neither of which were viable (laughs) options. They sound so affordable. (laughs) So that tore up so much of the lawn. And we had to decide, okay, what parts of the lawn still matter to us? Like, are we going to reseed that? which is really easy in the Pacific Northwest to reseed just because of our conditions. Mm -hmm. So we could do a little bit of that. But then, oh, the grass was always scraggly there anyway. What if we do this? Shade garden, yeah. But seriously, like, there are other parts of my yard that I'm like, that's a disaster zone. (laughs) Like, that is the area where nothing— I have to make either big changes Mm -hmm. or I have to be okay with it being what it is. Yeah, yeah. Or just also being okay with, like, oh, these weeds are always going to come over from the neighbor's yard. and. Either I can be mad about it or I can, whenever I'm going down that path, just pick up a few weeds, right? Mm -hmm. Like just the ones that are bothering me. Yeah. But then also I think thinking proactively about things that can like 
obviate the need to feel bad about things. So like you said, like mulch is such a ground cover. Mm-hmm. Like, really helps. Just love a ground cover. Love a ground right? cover. Yeah, definitely. Uh, things that are easy to take care of that you don't make you feel like a failure all the time. Like mm-hmm. sometimes you want those challenges. Yeah. And then sometimes you just need the like a beautiful grass yeah. to <laughs> make you make, feel like a success. Make it work. <laughs> it has been helpful to me as the garden has like, you know, my first few years, like the garden did look a little rough, to be honest. Like I could do close-in shots of pretty flowers, but because (laughs) there were so many new beds, there was so much just like kind of raw space and it was like not really hanging together yet. I was aware of it not looking great. And it was to the point that other people were aware. And not aware, people weren't rude about it, but like, you know, people would say like, oh, it's a new garden and these sort of like (laughs) kind but patronizing things where you'd be like, I'm trying so hard. (laughs) Can you not? Anyway. As it's, we're now in year four for most of the garden, it's starting to really feel like a garden. And because I finally found the sun, the sun part looks like it's like a year 10 garden because things grow way faster in the sun. And so now I'm realizing I see problems and other people come over and just absolutely would have no idea what I was talking about. Oh my gosh. And that is very liberating to realize like this is not, and also like honestly screw anyone who judges your garden. Like what is, that's weird. But if you are someone who struggles with that, like the house needs to be picked up before we host people, that mindset can definitely show up in your garden. And it's really helpful to be like, no, the garden doesn't need to be weeded before we have a barbecue this weekend. Nobody cares. Yeah. No Nobody. one is looking at it. Yeah. The only person who will even notice it is my mom, who'll be yeah. like, oh, yeah. some dandelions over there. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, mom, go pick up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which she won't, you know. She's Always not welcome. Like <laughs> Jump right in. But no one else. If anything, I feel bad because I think sometimes my friends, they know that I'm seeing things. But actually, I think when I go to their house, they don't see the things, right? So I'm like, I see like some nightshade invading their hydrangea. And I just go over there and just kind of casually rip it down, right? Not because I think they're bad gardeners, right? right? But I'm like, it's just like, I, it's a service I can provide while I'm yes, here. Yeah. <laughs> we have like one restaurant on the island. It's this great little cafe. And we were leaving on Saturday night and there was some nightshade that was in a bush. And I was like, just ripping at it. Mm-hmm. And the owner who I'm friends with was like, thank you. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't like, I'm not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they weren't attending to the nightshade, yeah. which can, in this climate, can take over a tree in, a week. Right, right. right? Like, they might have waited it three days ago, and it's just bad. I just, just I'm just trying to be nice to that plant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I think that's one thing that we can all benefit from, is thinking about, like, no one's judging you, and I'm not judging you. Yeah. Again, I feel like this is a place where diet culture shows up. I wrote a piece last year about, I think there's a version of diet culture happening in garden culture with the obsession with only natives and needing to be a purist about natives. Yeah, you know what I... Yeah, yeah. We both get this. Yeah. <laughs> Discuss. Share your feelings. <laughs> All right. So do you want to describe, like, how this usually manifests? Yeah. Part of the problem is we don't even have clear definitions of natives, but yes. it's a plant that is native to your region. So a plant that has been here for many hundreds, if not thousands of years in some form. And so there are plants that are not native to a garden, and if they get planted there, they will aggressively take over and push out the native plants. And this is bad for local ecosystems because wildlife depend on all these native plants. So that's sort of the backstory on natives. But what will happen is 
Anna or I will post something on, say, Instagram, or I posted in a local gardening, like, Facebook group, like, looking for suggestions for a shrub that does well in this climate, and people will just reply, natives. <laughs> you know, or you'll post a picture of your lilac or your hydrangea or, you know, like my tree peony, which is Chinese and beautiful. And people will be like, why aren't you planting more natives in this like very judgy way? Right. Or I like, you and I were talking about how like a counter, I could be like, I have all these roadies and roadies are native. And you're like, well, they're probably just going to point out it's like some sort of hybrid that's actually right. not native. Right, right. No, that's the <laughs> Korean rhododendron, and how dare you? Obviously, all the local wildlife will flee it. I think there's actually a lot of like anti-Asian racism bound up in the natives thing because mm-hmm. most of the invasives are Asian in origin, and it feels right. like bad to me to be being like this mad about and calling it Japanese knotweed. I think there's something there that a lot of the invasives get identified by their country of origin in that way. Right. Even, like, the blackberry that's incredibly invasive here in the Pacific Northwest is called Himalayan blackberry. But I think there's a difference that is often lost, which is when you're planting a peony or tree peony, Mm -hmm. the tree peony is not going to take over your lawn. It's not going to It's the slowest growing thing in the world. It's not going to take over anyone else's lawn. No. Right? It's not going to change the habitat in your larger neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Right? It is not an invasive. No. It'd be different if I, instead of planting a new hydrangea in this little spot, if I was like, oh, you know what I should do? I should go get a bunch of blackberries from Mm -hmm. one of these Himalayan blackberry plants that are all over the island. I should bury them in my yard (laughs) and start growing blackberries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And there are other things that are identified as invasive. Like, they're just different things that people know. Yeah. Right, and it's totally different according to your zone. Like, something like wisteria. Mm-hmm. is invasive in parts of the South. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it is not invasive here. No, right? same. You have to, like, baby wisteria. Yeah, you have to, to like, beg it. it to grow. So a lot of this depends, too, on, like, are you planting with any sort of knowledge or research? Because mm-hmm. you can't just depend on what is sold at the store. No. Not even your nursery, necessarily. No. Because I think sometimes, because so many people want wisteria, you're still going to be able to get wisteria at a place. I mean, burning bush is one of the most invasive shrubs around here and people love it because it turns bright red in the fall and we're you know like new york new england we're supposed to have amazing fall foliage right and so they're ignoring the fact that like burning bush is not native here and it seeds itself everywhere and like you see it in the the woods and it is a big problem and it's like this isn't what we were going for and it's in every nursery for sure right right because it's asked for yeah so that's different you're not like hey facebook group should i plant this burning bush in the corner of my no no (laughs) i'm like I had a lilac here. I'm thinking about something along those lines. What do we think? And people are like, you should only have a native. So there's this purism about it. And there's a lot of privilege, right? If you're shopping mostly at Home Depot or big box stores for your plants, because that's where they're cheap, you're not going to get a huge variety of natives. So to sort of require this of everybody is requiring everybody to have like knowledge and expertise and like the ability to order things from specialty stores or (laughs) check out to different nurseries that specialize. Like it's just not... On everybody's radar. I will say that one of the cool things that a lot of places do more of now is local gardening associations or county extension offices, which 
sound like a very official entity, but are actually just like this very cool thing that yeah. is nationwide, where every county has an extension office, it's an agricultural office. They'll do things like native plant sales, where if you just want to have a garden that lives, mm-hmm. right? Like a native plant sale is an incredibly great place to get stuff yes. that is going to thrive yes. in your garden because it's native, mm-hmm. right? Anytime people are incredibly prescriptive about how people should do something, if they're not causing harm, it bothers me. And I often think, too, that the people who are, like, prescriptive about this are also people who don't really garden that much. Well, that came up in one of the comments. (laughs) Like, one of the people who told me I needed to plant natives for this shrub that I was trying to—and I think I did end up planting a choke cherry, which I believe is native, just so we know. I did go that route. But they were like, well, the natives are great because the deer won't eat them. And I was like— Well, that is false. It totally is false. Literally, the deer's main diet. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Natives are not deer proof <laughs> at right. all. Right. And I know this is how we like conceived of it originally. It's like there can be people who like that is their thing that they are obsessed with mm-hmm. in the garden, right? It's like, I want to have all these natives. Yeah. Or I want above all else to have a pollinator garden. Mm-hmm. And just because you're not focused on pollinator gardens doesn't mean that you're also not providing pollination opportunities. Or that I'm, like, actively trying to prevent the pollinators. Like, you're just, like, spraying Roundup at, like, like It's a, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality. Yes. Okay, so in my property, like, we have three acres, most of it's weds, but we have this, like, half-acre meadow area that we have spent a significant amount of money and time turning into a native wildflower meadow. And I feel like I have done that. And now if I would like to have some not natives, if I would like to grow some giant hostas or some, you know, dahlias and poppies and things that are my obsessions, I'm going to do that in the other parts of my garden. (laughs) Well, and it's also like people are like, lawns are the devil. And I'm like, well, I inherited this lawn. I don't fertilize it. And like most people in the Northwest, I don't water it. So it's not, like, actually causing that much harm. Yeah. And it's, like, sometimes you need some grass to break up the, you know, like, very useful (laughs) paths. I just think the main goal here is, like, other people's choices with their garden, and if they're not causing harm, it's none of your business, Mm -hmm. right? If they ask for advice and are, like— I'm looking for some plants here. You could, like, a person could have suggested to you some native plants. Without emphasizing the nativeness. Without saying natives. Right. <laughs> like, tell me actual plants that might work in yes. the conditions I just described. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think where it gets diet culture for me is if I were to limit myself to natives, I would feel restricted. I would feel like I wasn't mm. allowed to have all of the, like, abundance of pleasure and beauty that I want in my garden. I think natives are beautiful, but milkweed is never going to be a dahlia. Like, they are just two different concepts. And I don't need to garden with a set of rules like that. And people get so, like, legalistic about it in terms of, is it a real native? Oh, yeah, yeah, Or is it a recent native, a naturalized native? It's like paleo, where people are arguing over, like, which foods did paleo with I mean, given that we were originally covered with ice, I guess there are no natives. (laughs) I don't know how how far back we're going, but at some point, it was very difficult to grow things here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I do think that people seek out those rules when they feel like they need to have restrictions. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a control thing. in that optimization culture piece, like the top comment is someone who said, I think that I took all of the energy that I fed into diet culture— and I moved it onto my house. I'm not saying I feel called out by that, but I feel a little <laughs> called out by that. 
<laughs> right. Can definitely relate. Okay, we are going to do some listener questions. There are a bunch of them. We'll try to do short answers so we can get through a whole bunch. Okay, Freelist, this is where we leave you. To get the whole rest of the episode where we are going to talk about weeding, we are going to talk about Roundup, we are going to talk about how to even start if you are planning a new garden and you're just feeling totally overwhelmed. And we're also going to talk about why we garden. There's a lot of good stuff there. To get it all, you're going to need to be a paid Burnt Toast subscriber. So click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to join us. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year, and you get this whole episode, all the bonus podcast episodes, and a ton of other cool stuff. Thank you so much for listening and supporting anti-diet, body liberation, and a little gardening journalism.